0: Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the executive director of the Trobe Asia. It's no exaggeration to say that the election of Donald Trump was a shock to the system, and this was no more so than in the region which had been the focal point of the Obama administration's foreign policy, Asia. No one had given much thought to a Trump victory, And as it became clear in the region on 9 November that Donald was going to be the 45th president, some fast footwork was needed to make sense of what his administration might mean. In the four and a half months since, we're still trying to work out just how Trump will approach the region. During the campaign, he undercut alliances and since election day has flirted with Taiwan, killed the TPP and had a very public bust up with the Australian prime minister. So far, there is no clear strategy in place towards the region. Trump remains impulsive, bombastic and nationalistic and plainly has a military first view of national power. How will the US handle a China that appears to relish the uncertainty caused by Trump's election and the rocky transition in Washington? And what will the US approach to Japan, South Korea, and Australia be? Joining me to discuss Trump and Asia is Ashley Townsend. Ashley is a research fellow at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, and he's held a string of previous appointments at the Lowy Institute, Fudan University in Shanghai, and my favorite as an instructor in the Warrior Scholar Project at Yale University. Ash, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Nick, great to be here.
0: So let's start by getting a sense of what Trump said about the region in the campaign and and what indications he gave then and and since about his kind of approach to the world and and Asia in particular.
1: Yeah, I think Trump during the campaign dealt with Asia on two levels. Uh, One, his confrontational stance towards China on the issue of the US-China trade relationship. We heard a lot from him and from some of his advisors, some of whom have gone on to take jobs, that uh, China was a currency manipulator, that the trade balance between the US and China was unsustainable, and that Trump would somehow bring back American jobs by getting tough with China and maybe whacking on a 45% tariff on Chinese goods. So that was the, the China piece. He also talked very disparagingly of U.S. allies, both in Asia and globally. Japan was in particular singled out. I think that Trump remembered from the 1980s was a major trade competitor of the United States and, frankly, a rival for a businessman. He called Japan and South Korea in in different ways free riders, basically saying that the U.S. couldn't sustain massive defence commitments to these countries. And he even uh, threw up the very unpopular balloon about... These countries acquiring their own nuclear weapons as a way of better ensuring their own defense, saying that he didn't like it, but it might be necessary. So his campaign rhetoric against allies was out of step with U.S. policy. There was nothing kind of clear and coherent was there. And I think that fact that
0: he was an outsider surrounded himself with pretty unorthodox people. And since his election, of course, there was that 150 plus Republican, the sort of never Trumpers who signed those letters, which means the kind of usual suspects that we might expect to step into the corridors of power are not there. What do you think are the most important factors or forces that are likely to shape his approach now that he's actually in office? What's going to shape his approach? What are his values that are going to do it? What's the outlook? What are the kind of tools of government that he might turn to?
1: Well, I think it's probably cliched now to say that he wants an America first approach to foreign policy, but he genuinely does want to find a way to rebalance US policy domestically and internationally in ways that will put self-interests of the United States ahead of the rest. So I think that that is his frame when it comes to foreign policy. I think it's his frame when it comes to government in general. But aside from that, the role of Steve Bannon is definitely important. He is the populist, former Breitbart executive, That has a very dark vision for asia's future he views it as inevitable that there will be a war between the us and china in the south china sea he's very pro the state pro strengthening the harder attributes of state power the military being able to deter other countries through american strength not necessarily using that military uh, in foreign interventionism he certainly isn't a neoconservative He nor Trump are not of the brand of conservatives that we saw in the Bush era, uh, frankly, that had more in common with Hillary Clinton than they do with Donald Trump. They don't want to be starting wars abroad to spread democracy. And that's because I think for for folks like Trump and Bannon, democratic ideals, the liberal order, perhaps even the rules-based order, are not priorities. They think America has done too much for the world and too much for other countries. They look at polling data in the United States that shows that large numbers of Americans believe the US is doing too much abroad, and they want to refocus on what matters most for America's back pocket.
0: Yeah, so there's that sense of America first is the bumper sticker, and we're now trying to figure out what that actually means in in concrete terms. Is there a bigger picture at play in the way that one ordinarily sees in a
1: president? Look, it's probably too soon to say, to be fair to the administration, what their big vision will be. If we look back at President Bush, he had this vision of transformational diplomacy, of spreading liberal values abroad, including through the barrel of a gun. Uh, Obama rebalanced that, not just in terms of trying to end Middle Eastern wars and slim down America's global footprint, but also he tried to be more compromising with America's competitors abroad. And he generally was trying to tone down American foreign policy, lead from a position of being one country among other major powers. And if you like, that was a step down, I think, from Bush in terms of American global ambitions to more limited ones. And we might see this administration taking that down another notch, really having a less all-encompassing vision for America's role as a global leader. We had Julie Bishop the other day pleading, if you like, in Singapore at the Fullerton lecture saying that the United States needs to step up and maintain its role as the preeminent strategic power in Asia. I view that in a way as a, as a plaintive call from an important foreign minister in this part of the world that, like other foreign ministers in this part of the world, is very apprehensive about a United States that neglects Asia too much.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. That speech its principal audience was in the US. Whether that audience was listening, I guess we'll have to wait and tell. You mentioned um, at the outset about China and particularly about how uh, during the campaign, China figured as kind of enemy number one, economically speaking, stealing our jobs, raping our country, all this kind sort of crazy Trump imagery. Without question, it's the most important relationship at every level, whether it's economically, strategically, diplomatically, whatever. It's the most important relationship in the region, if not the most important bilateral relationship in the world. The Obama people worked hard on it. I think sometimes people overstate how successful that was. I think there was a lot of movement, how much depth there was to the linkages that were created. I think we can have some questions. But how do you think Trump's going to approach China? Are we going to get a sort of abandoned vision of the inevitable conflict? Or is the kind of the inertia of the status quo going to eventually kick in and we'll get a variation on? There's been a pretty clear consistency across both sides of politics for, for a while from the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I'm apprehensive that that won't happen. I'm apprehensive that there will be a break or some sort of step change in US-China policy under Donald Trump, in part because of Trump and his advisors. But I think the broader context here is that the US-China debate has been moving to the right over the last four or five years anyway. US officials and analysts of Chinese politics and China's role in the region have become less and less convinced that it's possible to build a constructive strategic partnership with Beijing. So if that's the case, we may see that there'd be broader buy-in for a tougher stance on China. But let me get back to your key point about how does Trump see China. I think it was a surprise after the election when we saw he didn't just view China as a competitor in terms of the trade relationship, but also as a security competitor. Now, that wasn't strong in the election campaign. There were a couple of lines about the South China Sea. It wasn't really discussed. After the election campaign, we have this tough line on China emerging on the South China Sea more strongly about China not having essentially asked the United States for permission to manufacture artificial islands. We had a tough line on us Taiwan relations I understand that he was very loath to turn around on that policy and he still intends or at least we expect that he will continue to craft stronger US Taiwan defense relations which won't be uh, well received in Beijing and then finally he has this vision of a 350 ship Navy a stronger US naval presence in Asia and a need to squeeze China over its failure to step up more effectively in enforcing sanctions over North North Korea, all of these things come together to paint a very confrontational China policy. And I think underneath all of this is one key point. Donald Trump and a number of others in the administration all view China as an aggressive strategic competitor that is taking advantage of the United States and that can only be deterred through American power.
0: Yeah, so it's a fairly bleak vision of where we may be headed. I want to turn to the allies now because, as as you said, Julie Bishop's plaintive cry across the Pacific is is just one of the sort of key partners across the region who are looking and wondering what the US might do. During the campaign Trump made a great deal, as you said, about how the allies need to basically step up, pay for more, do more. Do you think this is likely to happen and and if so,
1: what form will this take? That's right. This is a, a key question the region has to deal with. US allies in the region have to address We can see that Trump is going to support his allies in Asia, but will be much more transactional about doing so. I think that's clear. The Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, when he was in the region, made a lot of reassuring comments about allies. Uh, But the statements that have come out of that and the statements that have come out of the most recent meeting between the Japanese Foreign Minister and Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, have emphasised that allies need to do more step up and contribute more to their own defense, which is in some ways in sync with Trump's election rhetoric. Japan has already started to do this. And Japan is probably the only country in Asia, the only US ally in Asia that is able and willing to contribute more to the US across the board. Before Abe and Trump met earlier this year, Abe put together a $450 billion investment package to boost us jobs and employment now there isn't another country in asia frankly the rest of asia put together couldn't come together on a deal like that it hasn't been agreed to but it did buy a lot of goodwill Japan has also got a a domestic reason for trying to do more. So I think it can. The Abe administration wants to change the constitution. It wants to normalize Japan, boost defense spending, and play a more active role in Asia. So I think they're able and willing to shoulder a greater burden. But when it comes to Australia and South Korea and others, I think that's a tough sell. Australia has already boosted defense spending by $30 billion over the next decade, there is no appetite in Australia to do more. But more importantly, Donald Trump is deeply unpopular in Australia, perhaps more unpopular here than anywhere else in Asia. And it's going to be a very tough sell to get Canberra or the Australian population on side to do more for a United States policy in the region that is perceived, even if it's not actually, more reckless.
0: I mean, I'm a sceptic that Australia will even meet its financial commitments that it's made, let alone if if more um, are put on the table, given the lack of ability to make hard economic decisions in Canberra. I want to turn to regional institutions, and I father suspect I know how you can answer this question, which is um, the Obama people put a lot of time and effort into regional institutions, particularly the ASEAN-centered mechanisms, held the Sunnyland Summit with the ASEAN leaders, the U- US-ASEAN Summit, as a real achievement. I remember Jeff Bader, who was his national security director for Asian affairs in his first administration, saying, we finally had a president who knew what ASEAN was. <laughs> um, <laughs> Compare that to Trump. How are the Trump people going to approach institutions? Is it going to be instrumentalism or is it just going to be good
1: old realpolitik, saying, forget it, these things are a waste of time, somewhere in the middle? I think that Donald Trump is not particularly interested in what he would see to be smaller regional organisations made up of smaller economies that can't offer big wins to the US in jobs and growth and and defence burden sharing. Southeast Asian countries in general... Uh, not all of them, but many uh, have been the recipient of American capacity building under Obama's rebalance. That's not something that I think Trump instinctively wants to give if he doesn't get something out of it. Now, undoubtedly, he will be surrounded by points of influence in Washington that want him to continue to engage Southeast Asia. Obama made 13 visits to Southeast Asia during his presidency. He set a very high bar. So we will certainly see a a letdown from that. How far that is remains to be seen. The fact that the State Department is going to have its budget cut by roughly a third, doesn't bode well for the rebalance in its diplomatic, economic, and governance and capacity-building aspects.
0: I want to go back to something you said earlier about Bannon and the influence of the negative views of China. There seems to be within the administration a bit of a division between that group, the sort of Bannon-centred coterie in and around the White House, in and around the person of the president, and then the so-called grown-ups um, in, the ca- <laughs> in the Cabinet and Exhibit A, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defence, the new National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, the Treasury Secretary, uh, Mnuchin, and possibly Rex Tillerson, although I think the remarks he made yesterday in Tokyo were the first time he's spoken on the record as the Secretary of State 53 days or so into office, which is not a good sign. The Bannon group clearly have influence at the moment. Do you think that's likely to remain the case? Will it give way to, will there be some uneasy concord, or will ultimately that, that more status quo Uh, mainstream republican view win out
1: yeah we can't foresee how these internal developments will necessarily play out but i think that it's important to draw attention to the fact that there are multiple power centers or multiple different points of confluence within the administration so you do have bannon with his more abrasive vision about us power in the world a lack of an ideological framework for that externally you have Jared Kushner, who's extremely influential in foreign policy. He's meeting a lot of world leaders. He's seen as the go-to guy for foreign leaders visiting Washington. We know remarkably little about what Jared Kushner thinks on any issue. When you get to the others, I think there are some interesting points to be made. Peter Navarro, the head of the new National Trade Council, a new institution that is about rolling out the Buy american Hire American agenda that Trump has set up, and Robert Lighthizer, the new U.S. trade representative, are both to a varying degrees protectionists that view China and other Asian countries that have been involved in dumping in U.S. markets and have played hardball with the United States on trade and economic issues, view them as competitors. So I think we're going to see a push for more mercantilist policy from folks like that. That won't be shared with others in the cabinet. Rex Tillerson, as a former Exxon CEO, is not someone who is opposed to a global liberal world economic system. But he seems reasonably unempowered at the moment. Trump has not allowed him to flesh out his department. So he's not going to be a strong influence on policy, it seems. General Mattis, the now Secretary of Defense, has been probably the most status quo power i think that he will have a lasting effect on u.s policy i think that Mattis, in many ways is in the administration with one eye on his job and another eye on making sure that he has his letter of resignation ready and that he will use that if necessary to press the president if things really get out of line i think there's a sense of duty behind what mattis is doing and the fact that he is so popular not just among republicans Mattis could have been a Democratic president's secretary of defense. He's very much has a traditional view of American power, of the need to deter adversaries, of the need to work with allies. And he has made sure that policy has steered in that direction as best he can. He will try and keep the administration on track.
0: Perhaps I want to talk a little bit about some of the flashpoints that are going to be the crises which will test the Trump administration early, in which things could get really ugly very swiftly if, if they're not handled well. The first cab off the rank was, not surprisingly, North Korea. Um, Nuclear test followed by four missiles being flung into the Sea of Japan. Looks like they were targeting American bases in Japan, or at least it is purported that they were. Some even quite strong critics of the Trump administration, like Jonathan Pollack at Brookings, have actually said, you know, this is a tick. They've handled this pretty well. They've behaved like grown-ups. Do you agree with that assessment? And and more broadly, how do you think the U.S. is going to handle North Korea?
1: I don't think we know how north korea has been handled yet we know a couple of things we know that the um, missile defense system known as thad was deployed early in south korea in the wake of most recent missile tests and that is a good thing that is necessary for reassurance in that part of the world it's necessary for tracking north korean missiles and intercepting if necessary that shows that the united states is very serious on this But we also have Donald Trump's remarks after the last missile launches when he was in his golf club with Abe and in front of members of the public and the press started discussing the North Korean issue and didn't even mention that the US was behind South Korea. He just said the US was committed to Japan's defense after North Korean provocation. Now that seems odd. And that is not reassuring that the president knows exactly what's going on. Now, I don't think anyone expects Donald Trump to have a hand on the North Korean issue himself. I think the fact that there is a policy review underway in the Pentagon right now is a good sign. We know that all options are on the table, from preemptive strikes, which would be catastrophic, through to business as usual, a return to negotiations, secondary sanctions on Chinese companies that are still trading with North Korean firms, and all of the above. It would be good for that policy review to broaden and involve the state department and regional stakeholders now that's what Tillerson's trip to the region is mainly about i think that there has been some problem in his messaging we've heard tough calls from Tillerson about secondary sanctions and we haven't yet heard how they're going to induce Beijing to come to the table and work with the United States to resolve this issue. There is no solution to the North Korean crisis. that doesn't involve compromise with Beijing. So how we get there with a weak Secretary of Defense remains to be seen. So I wouldn't give them full marks, but I think that we can be reassured that at least in the Pentagon, there is someone who is in charge of the situation and acting very responsibly.
0: He didn't press the button at the first opportunity, so take <laughs> a tick on that one. And um, what about the South China Sea? This is an issue you're really well across. I mean, this seems to be the the obvious place where, if you're a muscular-minded Trump administration person said we're going to sh- we're going to teach those Chinese a lesson, this is the obvious place in which you might do it. Do you think that's likely to occur? And and if so,
1: what might happen? I think that we are at a point in the South China Sea dispute where there is a realization in Washington's broader strategic community that freedom of navigation operations, that is sending US warships close to China's artificial islands, is not a lasting solution. And so although I think it's likely that you will see an increase in the scale and tempo and type of naval operations that take place, they won't be the benchmark of America's policy in the South China Sea. Rex Tillerson has made the most interesting statements on this to date. He said the wrong thing when he talked about blocking Chinese access to his islands, that he quite literally jumbled his words and had the access and the islands and the subject of the sentence all wrong. He doesn't intend to do this. And the clarification that came a month later was about blocking Chinese access to islands in a contingency. So that's fine. The interesting statement that also came out in his clarification was that the United States would need to think more about ways to accept itself greater risk in pushing back against China and imposing costs on China for its island building and strategic creep in the South China Sea. Now this chimes with what a small number of analysts really have been arguing for a long time, which is that There is no direct solution to Chinese island building. We need to think about indirect ways to put pressure on China if we want to change their policy on constructing military outposts in the South China Sea. Now, I don't think that Tillerson and the rest of the cabinet yet has particularly sophisticated thinking on how they will achieve this. But if that is indeed a priority of this administration, and I think that it might be in time, then we're likely to see a more nuanced effort by the United States to expand the ways that it puts pressure on China, perhaps into geoeconomic pressure. Perhaps we might see other measures in terms of denying China things that it wants in US-China relationships and linking them to its behavior in the South China Sea. So I don't think we're necessarily going to see a muscular US presence in the South China Sea, but that won't mean that policy isn't going to get tough. Linkage politics might come back. It's the 70s all <laughs> over
0: again. So I'm going to- Turn now briefly to Australia and what it might do. I think Australia has been watched very closely across the region precisely because our circumstances are close ties to the US, economic ties to China. How do you think Australia can or should respond to a Trump world? We've got him for at least four years. Odds
1: are we've probably got him for eight years two main risks that Australia needs to deal with. One is a risk of unmanageable or unacceptable volatility in US-China relations. And the other is a risk that the United States will neglect Southeast Asia more than it should. So I think Australia can really think about a couple of strategies. One of them is trusted partner in the US-China relationship. We're not going to manage their relationship. It would be foolish to think so. But what they don't have a clear prioritization of their China policy. Trump wants to get tough on every single major issue in the bilateral relationship. So I think Australia needs to work with the rest of the US cabinet to try and start setting priorities on US-China policy that align more with what the region is willing to accept and will work with the US on. Because ultimately, if policy by the United States isn't coordinated with its regional partners, then it's not going to be an effective one. We also have a capacity to help alleviate mixed messages uh, between the US and China. When Trump tweets or when the Secretary of State says the wrong thing in a Senate hearing, uh, that causes a lot of concern in Beijing. In China, there was a lot of concern that US policy might become very radical on Taiwan and very radical in the South China Sea. Now, Australia has a trusted ear in Washington, we understand U.S. intentions probably better than the Chinese, it's fair to say. We have also very good diplomatic uh, linkages in Beijing. We share at the moment some of Beijing's concerns that Trump could be a little bit too reckless in Asia. I think on issues there, we can serve as a little bit of a translator to help alleviate Beijing's concerns when there is inaccurate information about Trump's policies coming out. I think that would be important. Australia's Trump whisperer. Trump whisperer. That could be it. So that's dealing with the China piece, in terms of the broader regional piece, I think that Australia needs to take a more active leadership role in Southeast Asia and in the region more generally. We need to do this with our partners. It's not about acting alone. But it's about stepping up rather than stepping back to make sure that we are not passive onlookers as the regional order is not embraced by washington perhaps as much as we would like and starts to fray relations between partners in the region so i think there what we can do is firstly go to the united states with our allies and partners speak with cabinet because cabinet officials in defence and state are more likely to agree with or align their views of the world with regional partners than the White House, and communicate our shared interests, our shared red lines, what will the region accept and won't accept. We also need to step up our own engagement with Southeast Asia, both alone and with countries like Japan and Singapore and other capable regional partners, even India. Uh, Doing this would help enmesh and continue to build the resilience, the sense of security in Southeast Asian countries that might be lost as the US pulls out of the TPP, pulls out of the rebalance, and turns its back, frankly, on some Southeast Asian countries. There's a risk that if Australia and other similar liberal-minded countries don't engage the Southeast Asian bloc, then, in fact, we will see a fraying of that region. We will see influence from external powers, including China, uh, grow. And that won't necessarily be conducive to our interest or, frankly, to America's interest in the long run.
0: All right, that's all the time that we have. But um, I hope to have you back on the program as the Trump era unfolds in Asia, because we're in for a wild ride. We're in for a ride. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at Ashley Townsend, that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-T-O-W-N-S-H-E-N-D, or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trove Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.